Clancy Pasta presents I Made a Cabinet Out of Cursed Wood Written by N.S. Lewis and narrated by Clancy When I was 12 years old and living in my childhood home in Maine, a wicked nor'easter blew in and wreaked havoc on our front yard. In the morning, when the snow had finally stopped whipping around, I surveyed the damage through the kitchen window with my father. Branches were strewn across a thick layer of snow. I was crestfallen to discover that the birdhouses, which I had worked hard to craft with my father's help, and which during winter months hung from bare branches and fed the goldfinches, were nowhere to be seen. My father's smoking chair had been blown clean off the covered porch and now lay buried in the snow, three legs poking up into the cold air. But the most impressive thing that the storm did was bring down the old ash tree. The tree was massive, gnarled, and ancient. It had split halfway up the trunk and the bulk of it lay dead in our yard. Get your snow pants on, sonny boy my old man said, sipping his coffee. Looks like we got some work to do. I didn't mind. I usually had a good time helping my dad, and he always imparted me with the various bits of wisdom and knowledge he had piled up in his head. I got dressed, and we headed outside, where the snow was up to my knees. My father walked around the fallen tree, studying it. All that is good firewood, he said, tracing out a section of thick, twisted branches with his finger. But he pointed to an enormous branch, which was, itself, as big around as most of the other trees in our immediate yard. But that, I can get a few planks out of that chunk there. See how it's nice and straight? At least make a little jewelry box or something for your mother. He paused to light up a smoke. Damn tree's been here forever, and the gal's heartbroken the thing finally fell over. But that's where I come in and make her happy again, see? Let me tell you something right now, my boy, and you listen good. You got yourself a happy wife, and you got yourself a happy life. Now run along to the shed and get the chainsaw. We worked all morning. Mostly, I hauled the wood, but I did get to use the chainsaw on some of the smaller branches, which thrilled me. I dragged the chunks of firewood back by the shed for further processing as my father trimmed up the lumber log. As I was stacking the wood... I looked across the field behind our house and saw that another tree had fallen, right at the edge of the forest. I told my father, and when he was finished with the ancient ash, we went to have a look. Red oak, said my dad, looking it over. Nothing special, but I can get a few boards out of it and the rest will burn up just fine, and all that's just as good as money in the bank. We got to work on that, and when we were finished... My father got the tractor and loaded both the oak and ash lumber logs into the back of his pickup truck. Tomorrow, I'll get these sawn up at the mill. Can I come? I asked. You promised that I could come. Did I now? Yeah, two years ago. That time that cherry tree fell down? The old man molded over. You'll be having school tomorrow. You promised, Pop. Well... When a man's word becomes worthless, a man becomes worthless, I always say. All right, kiddo, just don't tell your mother. The next morning, my father told my mom that he would take me to school, but we went to the local lumber yard instead. They had a bandsaw mill set up there, 
and I watched in amazement as it went to work slicing up the oak log. A man named Jeff Bloomfield was operating the mill. We rolled the oak log into the carriage, and the long blade took a pass, trimming off a section of the round part. Then Jeff pushed a button, and mechanical arms lifted up and rolled the log onto its flat surface. The blade traversed the log again to create a second flat surface. This happened twice more until the log was squared up, and on the fifth pass, the mill produced a board. I grabbed one end while my dad grabbed the other, and we carried it over to his truck while Jeff began slicing the next board. I marveled at all of the interesting color and grain that was hiding beneath the bark of the tree. It's awesome, I shouted above the hum and buzz of the mill. I rarely saw my father smile, but when he looked back at me then, one side of his mouth was pulled up towards his eye, which, for him, passed as a smile. We got five boards out of the oak log, and then we rolled the ash log into the carriage. Once again, Jeff squared up the log, but this time, when the blade passed through to cut the first board, it let out a terrible screech. It sounded like somebody was screaming. Jeff slammed his hand on a big red button, and the machine stopped, the blade halfway through its cut. This log's no good, said Jeff. Too much tension. The old lady'll have my balls if I come back empty-handed on this one, said my father. It's gonna break the blade. I'll pay for a new one if that happens, said my dad, and for your time changing it. Jeff shrugged. Wish I had that kind of dough, he muttered, starting the machine back up. The blade struggled through the log, screaming every inch of the way. When it had almost made the full pass, there was a sudden crack, and the mostly sawn board split the rest of the way off the log and flew, end over end, through the air. Fuck! Jeff screamed. I looked over to see my dad frowning, as the board arched up towards the ceiling and then came crashing down on a pile of lumber on the other side of the room. That's it, said Jeff. No more from this log, it's gonna get somebody killed. You're not gonna be able to use this shit anyway. It's gonna be a goddamn pretzel by the time it dries. My dad scowled, then walked across the room, picked up the ash board, and threw it in the back of his truck. Fine, he said to Jeff. What do we owe? Jeff wrote out a ticket and handed it to my father. Don't you bring any of that homegrown shit around here anymore, he said to my dad. Could have killed somebody. We drove around to the main building, went up front and paid. On the ride back to school, I asked my dad why that board had flown through the air like that. Even after it's dead, it is still alive, he said. It's got all kinds of forces working away on it, wanting to twist it, make it expand and contract, the grain pulling it in different directions. That's why you use the straight logs. This one was straight, so I thought it wouldn't be so bad. But I was wrong. There's a lot of tension in this one. That night, I had a terrible dream. A hooded figure was chasing me through the woods. I ran as fast as I could, but it wasn't good enough. The figure kept closing in. Then I tripped over a branch and fell on my behind, and it was standing over me. I saw a big, fleshy nose poking out of the hood, above thin and sour lips, and next to what I thought looked like a faint scar across the figure's cheek. The face looked familiar, 
but I couldn't quite place it. I screamed as it began reaching. The next day, Billy Bloomfield got called to the principal's office during second period English. He didn't come back. I later found out that his father, Jeff, had died of a heart attack that morning. Twenty-five years later, my mother and father died in a car crash. I was living in Tampa, Florida at the time, managing a commercial millwork and cabinet shop, and my wife was a corporate lawyer downtown. We both took time off to fly to Maine, make all the funeral arrangements, and deal with the estate. I was an only child, so it all fell to me. Jane was a great help, and frankly, did almost all of the work, while I could barely hold myself together through the grief. It was there after the funeral, sitting in my parents' house and drinking wine, that we decided we would stay in that house. Though we made good money, we both felt already burnt out on our retrospective career paths, and neither of us were enamored by Tampa. Jane thought it was too hot, and I thought there were too many people there. The kicker was when I suggested that the little town I grew up in was a great place to raise kids. We had just started trying a few months back, and hadn't yet found out that Jane was infertile. And all of that reasoning was good and true, but deep down, there was something else. Something that I couldn't explain to Jane, because I didn't understand it myself. I belonged there. In that town, in that house. I just belonged there, and being there made me feel whole again, in a way that I hadn't felt for a long time. We dutifully returned to Tampa in order to ease the transition for our employers. We didn't know what the future held and didn't want to burn any bridges, but the whole time I was there I felt an intense pressure to return to my true home. When we made it back to Maine, this time I felt for good. I took a look around the old man's shop as the bittersweet memories crashed over me. It saddened me to see that, since he had retired, my father had apparently spent little time there, as the place was becoming run down. The building itself had once been an old barn, and in his life, my dad had modernized it somewhat, putting fiberglass insulation up between the posts, but never getting around to covering the walls with plywood or drywall. When I turned on the lights, a startled squirrel glared at me in horror for a moment before scampering out through a hole that had been chewed in the exterior wall. Some of the drawers in the shop were full of bits of wool and other material that mice had gathered from somewhere in order to make their nests. I walked past the machines, still covered in sawdust from when my dad had used them, and fought back tears as I approached the room where the wood was stored. It was a large, uninsulated room with a dirt floor. What was once a horse stable, I think. A tripod with halogen work lights stood in the center, plugged into an extension cord coming from the machine room. I clicked the lights on and looked around at the stacks of wood. Off in the corner, leaning against the wall by itself, I saw it. That old plank of ash that we had sawn up so many years ago. Somehow, I knew that's what it was before I was close enough to really identify it with my senses. And once I was close enough to do that, my heart sank. I could see that it was horribly twisted. A goddamn pretzel. But worse than that, it was mostly rotten. The end that was sitting in the dirt was black with rot, and this continued out most of the board until I saw just two feet or so of the natural brownish yellow of ash wood at the top. 
But as I got closer, I smiled. That top bit, it was spalted. Spalted wood is where a certain type of fungus has made itself at home, and usually looks like somebody has taken a fine-tipped ink pen and drawn intricate lines on top of the natural grain pattern of the wood. Let this process go on too long, and the wood becomes rotted. Catch it just in time, and it's beautiful. I grabbed the plank and carried it over to the radial alarm saw in the other room. The blade groaned as I pulled it towards me, and wanted to bind up, but I got through the cut and was able to preserve about 30 inches of the board. The first year back in Maine was rough. Jane was starting her own solo law practice, and I was starting my own solo woodworking business. It was crazy, but we were driven. Even so, without a nice little nest egg left over from Tampa, and a free place to stay, not to mention the fact that I already had a full shop at my disposal, we never would have been able to do what we did. On top of everything else, this is when we found out that we can never have biological children together. Because business was slow to build, and I often had stretches of time where I had to make myself busy or go insane with anxiety, I began building a little cabinet. Mostly, I wanted to build something out of that ancient spalted ash, to honor my mother and my father. My mother, because she had cared deeply about that tree, and my father, because he had mostly taught me the trade. There was just enough wood to saw in half along its thickness, and make two book-matched door panels, so that is what I designed the piece around. It is a little cabinet on a stand. The stand is red oak, the same oak that I cut up with my father that winter day so many years ago. The case of the cabinet is ash, not from the ancient tree that fell down in our yard that day, but from another tree on the property. The doors are frame and panel, and the frame being some nice curly white oak that I found in the shop, and the panels being, of course, the spalted ash. I worked on it slowly, whenever I couldn't fill the time with something that I felt was actually productive. During our second year in Maine, business picked up for both Jane and I, so I had less and less time to work on the cabinet, and it sat for a while, forgotten, in the loft where it wouldn't take up shop space. One day, I went up there for one thing or another, and I saw the nearly finished piece. I took it downstairs and spent the next three days finishing it up, pushing back my deadlines. I sprayed a few coats of shellac on it, then stepped back and looked at it for a long time. It was good, but not great. The wood in its arrangement was spectacular and made the piece worthwhile, but the design fell flat near the top of the piece. I had taken an improvisational approach to the design, which sometimes paid off with unplanned creativity and sometimes didn't. Here's a photograph of the finished cabinet sitting in my messy shop. I liked it well enough to bring into the house, and decided that it would look better with something sitting on top of the cabinet. I thought some bottles might look nice, so it became our liquor cabinet, the day before we were to host a dinner party. I carried it into the house and moved all of the liquor we'd bought from the kitchen cabinets to the cabinet that I had just made. I put an ice bucket on top, along with a bowl of limes, a cutting board, a knife, and a few select bottles of expensive liquor. Inside, behind the doors, were a few bottles of wine, and different kinds of glasses. When Jane came home and saw it, she was delighted. It's gorgeous, honey, she said. What'll it be? 
I asked, opening the doors and pulling out a tall, thin glass. G&T, please. I made up two gin and tonics and handed her one. Cheers, I said. Cheers, she said, and we cleaned glasses. We had a few drinks and then went into the bedroom. That night, I dreamt that we were in the hospital. My wife was giving birth. The doctor bent down, then came up with a crying baby. It's a girl, he said, and then a dark red spot appeared on his face mask. His eyes opened wide as the red spot grew larger, the blood soaking into the fabric of the mask. Just before he dropped to the ground, he threw our child into the air, and I dove across my wife to catch her. Standing where the doctor had stood one second ago were two men in black hooded robes holding bloody knives. I couldn't see their eyes, but I thought that the features I could make out looked familiar. I knew them, somehow. They lunged, knives out, and my baby. The evening of the dinner party was upon us, and Jane and I were in the kitchen doing the final prep before the guests arrived. Jane had become friendly with Denise Hall, who worked at the credit union in town, and did a lot of transactions with Jane. Jane had invited Denise and her husband Tom, as well as Jane's sole employee, Karen Bloomfield, and her husband, Billy. I've never hosted a mayor before, she said, taking a sip of her red wine. I could tell that she was actually nervous, and I laughed. Tom Hall, I said, our esteemed mayor. I was in the same room with him, senior prom after party, when he pissed his pants and passed out in the middle of the floor. People drew dicks on his face, that kind of thing. You've got nothing to worry about. Jane looked at me. The same kind of thing is true for most powerful men in America. They got drunk at a party, maybe even raped somebody once, but still, they hold power and it's real. I frowned. Yeah, but Tom's okay. I mean, I haven't really talked to him for a while, but... I trailed off and took a sip of my beer. It was strange. I was suddenly very wary of Tom Hall. I shook it off and changed the subject. I'm looking forward to meeting Karen. Now, Jane smiled. Yeah, well, it figures that my paralegal would be married to another person that you went to high school with. Small town. Billy Bloomfield? Yeah, we went to high school together, but we weren't in the same crowd. Jane put the final garnishes on the salmon and stuck it in the oven. Well, apparently he remembers you quite well, she said. Oh, said Tom, leaning back in his chair and patting his belly. That was so delicious, Jane. Thank you. Hey, I said, putting on a fake scowl. I helped too. Of course you did, dear, said Tom's wife, Denise. Then she turned to Jane and said, Thank you. It was wonderful. You did well for yourself, friend, said Tom to me, taking a sip of his old-fashioned. Back in high school, you couldn't get a date to save your life. Now you end up with the creme de la creme. Don't be an ass, Tom, said Denise, good-naturedly slapping his shoulder. Tom guffawed. Well, thank you for the compliment, Jane said, putting on a smile that I knew was forced. It's been wonderful having you here. 
couldn't find no one to have his demon child, muttered Billy Bloomfield into his rum and coke. Billy's wife, Karen, dropped her mouth open in shock. William, she said. What's that, Billy boy? said Tom. Speak up. Couldn't find no whore to have his demon child in high school, and now I guess he found him one, said Billy loudly now. He's drunk, said Karen, her face flushed red. We should go now. She stood up. That's not a bad idea, said Tom, sitting forward now and frowning. You know what I mean, Tommy, said Billy. Some bitch got that witch blood in him. Some bitch killed my daddy. Your father died of a heart attack, Billy, I said. He was putting me on edge. I wanted him out of my house before he did something. It was tragic, but it had nothing to do with me. Billy slammed his glass on the table, rage overtaking his eyes and turning his face red. Weren't no goddamn heart attack, he shouted. Goddamn witch magic, you or your mama. Under the table, I felt my hand begin to shake. I think it's time you went home, Billy, I said. Yes, said Karen. Come on, you fool, it's time to go home. I'll go home, said Billy. But you're gonna get yours, he said, pointing at me with a steady finger. Shit, Bill, said Tom. Come on, I'll walk you out. Billy whipped his head around to face Tom. You know. Don't you lie now. Come on, buddy, said Tom, standing up. Let's get you on home now. Tom walked Karen and Billy out while Jane, Denise, and I sat in shocked silence. After a few minutes, Tom opened the front door and walked back to the table. I guess we should be going too, he said. What the fuck was that? I said. Tom? Guy just had one too many. He does that, said Tom. Come on, Denise, time to get home and feed the dogs. No, I said. You knew what he was talking about. What did he mean? Which is magic? Tom laughed. It seemed good-natured, but I wasn't quite sure. You never heard it, did you? He said. Heard what? In high school, there was a rumor going around that your mother was a witch. Damn fool took it to heart, I guess. I... No, I never heard that. Well, now you have. And we all know it's the sort of hurtful nonsense that kids cook up in high school. Everyone knows that now, even if they didn't then. Everybody but old Billy Bloomfield. He thinks I killed his father, I said, still in disbelief. He really thinks that. He's a drunk, said Denise. That he is, said Tom. And now I think we ought to go, darling. He turned to Jane. Can't thank you enough for the delicious meal. You've got the magic touch. Thank you, stuttered Jane, still quite obviously in a state of shock. Thanks, Jane, said Denise, still turned to me. And, and you too, of course. She stood up. Well, we'll see you tomorrow, Jane. You two have a good night. Thanks for coming, I said, forcing a smile. When they were gone, Jane turned to me and said, What the fuck was that? 
I have no idea, I said. Karen didn't make it into work the next day. Billy Bloomfield died of a stroke early that morning. As Faye would have it, Tom Hall also died that morning of a heart attack. When I heard the news, a thought occurred to me. They were the ones in the dream, where Jane was giving birth to our child, and they were trying to harm it. It wasn't quite them, but it was very close. A few days later, Jane showed me the stick. She must have had a leftover from when we had been trying. There were two lines there. We went out and bought another one. Two lines again. She was pregnant. I opened the cabinet and withdrew a short, wide glass. I put the glass on the top of the cabinet and poured some scotch into it, then took it over to the dining table. I sat down and remembered. It was a long time ago, a few hundred years ago. There was a woman being chased by a mob of men. The woman looked like my mother, not exactly, but close. And the men, I recognized many of them. Not directly, but as facsimiles. The same way that Billy and Tom were in my dream, but not quite. The same way I now realized that Billy's father, Jeff, was in my dream all those years ago. But not quite. It was their ancestors that I was seeing in my dreams. It was their ancestors chasing down my mother's ancestor. I now saw clearly in my mind. Now they were upon her. They put the noose around her neck and pulled her up. The rope strung across the straight, sturdy branch of a young ash tree. 